Hello, and welcome to episode 3 of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons, Creative Writing Chat with Peter and Izzy, where we talk about dragons. Among other things, I'm Izzy. I'm Peter. We're still working out how we do this. Right. So today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit more... Um, or we're just going to talk about world building, not a little bit more about it. It's kind of similar, or it's very similar to setting, but we're still going to talk about some things that are kind of different. I don't know, just to kind of clarify a little bit, this is something I was thinking of before we started recording. Kind of when I think about the differences between like world building and setting, it's kind of how we talked a little bit about the differences between space and place. There's like space is kind of the physical landscape around a thing and places like what we make of it, the stories we tell about it, symbols we associate it with. So world building to me is kind of like place where a setting is more like space, if that makes sense. Although like not, it's not a very, like the comparison isn't a hundred percent equivalent. Just something to possibly think about. Yeah, I think personally for me world building is like a lot meatier than setting setting is like the cardboard cutout like to use sort of a metaphor of like going on a movie set and this is the set what you need for this scene or this set of scenes and like world building is just like what you need for the entire entirety of the work i guess to hold it together yeah it's like the stories that go with like, within the framework of that place. So I think, like, your description of setting, like, the movie set very is a very good description. But moving on, so the text that we're going to kind of talk about in association with Chapter 2 of the story I've been working on is a TV show, the best TV show ever, I think, Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. I guess I can briefly just describe, we're going to talk about like the first episode because Izzy hasn't seen it or seen the whole thing. I have seen episode one. So we'll just talk like a little bit about episode one and why it's amazing, why the world building is really cool. Basically, Kipo is a show about this girl who lives underground 200 years in the future in a post-apocalyptic world. Probably somewhere in California. I didn't realize it was in California. I don't know if it is. It just seems California-ish to me. Having never been to California, I imagine this <laughs> to be like that. But so, like, she loses her way and, like, gets lost away from home. I don't remember if episode one tells you why she isn't in her home anymore. No. No, okay. I don't but, know it, so probably not. But she's, you know, she's not familiar with the surface world at all. So, like, she sees the sun for the first time and is like, oh, my word, the sun, my eyes are going to burn. And then the, her eyes don't burn. And she's like, whoa, this is amazing. She sees stars for the first time. She's obsessed with them. Although she already knows, like, all the constellations and things. She's been studying them in her burrow. That's pretty cool. She doesn't know, like, the plants, so the flowers are ginormous. There's this plant, Death Ivy, which kills you if you touch it, and she, like, has no idea. 
and she like meets this other person this human who's been living on the surface and is like okay you're you're not going to survive i will show you how to get back to your back to your home and it's them kind of like navigating this post-apocalyptic world and trying to figure out you know where her family is how to get her there safely that sounds about right i it's also um got a singing frog in the first episode where who wears a suit oh that frog does not sing wait he does wear a suit he does i thought i could have sworn he sang he has i was just shaking my head which none of you can see (laughs) (laughs) he has like an amazing soundtrack and there's a there's a lot of like really good songs and stuff in here in the show they do like a lot of like rapping and hip-hop which isn't typically something I listen to, so the show has really exposed me to that. But that's not like world building. But it yeah, no, this certain sense. I guess so. Um, if we think of the me- well, the difference in the medium and how you build the world. True. I mean, there's some interesting uses of music too. Where like, um, there's one character who like has a tape recorder, so like he plays music. But I'm getting sidetracked. Yeah, oh, so there's also the, the frog in the suit's really important. The surface world has a lot of animals that talk. They're called mutes because they've all been, like, mutated somehow. And you have, like, the normal mutes who are kind of, like, human-sized. So you have the frogs with the suits. You have cats who all wear, like, lumberjack gear. I don't think that's episode one either. Like, snakes who really like music. But then you also have really big mutes who are the mega-mutes who... They can't talk. They're assumed to be kind of like mindless. They're kind of more how we picture animals today, but like very, very big. So it's kind of just interesting seeing like the humans have all gone underground, literally, and the surface has kind of just changed where you still have like all these old ruins and skyscrapers and things, but they're all being occupied by these really fascinating mutated creatures. Yeah, so the reason I wanted to bring up Kipo is not only is it just an amazing show, but the idea of the post-apocalyptic world building is something that's very similar to the story that I'm trying to write. In a few different ways, though, like Kipo does it more explicitly and upfront, at least at first. And I don't know how much, like maybe this is something we'll get into, like, how quickly should you tie things back to the past? But Kipo, through her exploration of the surface world, like it's clearly the art design shows you and the setting shows you that it's, you know, this old city. You see what kind of city it is in terms of like the stores that are there and what kind of society used to be there. So, and just as we move on to my piece, it's just something that I'm trying to think of is like, how how strongly should you connect back to the past in this past society? How much does the apocalypse inform, you know, the present of your narrative? You know, is it really impactful? Like for Kipo, it's sort of, there are elements of the apocalypse that are really important to her story, and there's some that's it's just a backdrop. So how much of it do you really want to incorporate into your own storytelling? Yeah, I thought it was cool, at least... I've only seen the first episode, but how Kipo like goes into a clothing store and is like, oh my god, I've never seen clothes like this, and she just tries a ton of things on, and it's fun because you can see how 
the clothes she tries on are familiar to us, but um, everything to her is unfamiliar. But then also they insert different things in this like post-apocalyptic world that are very unfamiliar to us. And also to Kipo because she was from underground. But that are just like the new normal, I guess, or the new like present for them. Like a six-legged or 12-legged giant bunny. Mega bunny, yes. Mega bunny. (laughs) Or like a frog in a suit. Among many other things. And those those ties to the past also are ways that you can kind of demonstrate what the future is like in certain ways. Izzy, are you okay with a minor spoiler? Not like plot. Uh, yeah, like, that's okay. Okay. I mean, I kind of have like two examples. One, the frog with a suit. Like there's a few frogs in a suit and they act kind of as a mafia and the whole suit thing. And like they're very... Um, kind of paranoid about keeping their ties straight so they'll criticize each other like one the tie gets a little askew (laughs) and that's you know that's not good so it kind of tells you like how the frogs operate and what they kind of latched onto and eventually you see like even the the villain of the first two seasons dresses himself in old like british royalty like clothes (laughs) like his soldiers have you know, red coats from, like, the Revolutionary War, the the U.S. Revolutionary War. Um, but how? But how, I don't know how they lasted that long. They're just, those, you know, those clothing makers were really good back then. <laughs> but that's not important. It's, it, you know, it ties you back to the past in this explicit thing that at least everyone in the U.S. and the U.K., we all, you know, know that imagery of the, the red coats. But it also tells you something about how those characters are operating now and like what you know what do they bring with them from the past what do they like latch on to how do they want to to you know move forward sometimes it's kind of a struggle of figuring out like okay what exactly like is this too you know explicit of a reference to the past and like does it make sense to have something like a like a british red coat in the story but sometimes it also just makes, you know, a lot of sense in terms of showing you what the world is like and how the characters have evolved within this within this new world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I'm just I'm absorbing thinking about your thoughts. <laughs> I like that idea of like how they carry the past in their new present. I'm also thinking along the lines of like familiar versus unfamiliar and how for us as like modern day readers reading about post-apocalypse and being like, I know what Trader Joe's is or something, even if th- these people to in the, this post-apocalypse don't have any idea. Or it kind of reminds me of that Talking Heads song, um, Nothing But Flowers, where they're like, I miss the shopping malls and supermarkets. And then there's this one uh, food chain that I don't recognize that was a common food chain back in the day when the song was written. And that in itself dates the song, even though it, like the song itself was set to be about some people in some random future. So also thinking about how references to the past are very locatable in time and space and how that can say something too, but also 
using things that aren't locatable can kind of create new sets of meanings as well because these are things like a 12-legged bunny or a frog in a suit. Like we don't have necessarily, we don't have ready-made meanings for them. So thinking about making a new language or new signifying language with that as well is what I'm thinking about. Yeah, so there's there's this conversation of so the you know post-apocalyptic doesn't necessarily just mean this future like after this event you have to consider both the apocalypse like the past and the present and the future yeah and your story i think does it's still in development this is chapter two uh story two but if you'd like to give a quick let's say one minute summary you can take a couple seconds to gather your thoughts I will try. I'm just going to go for it. But yeah, so the story that we're going to be talking about today is my second short story in my series of short stories about Pana, the human, and Wave Skimmer, the dragon. The last time we saw them leave their home for the first time in this cold, glaciated northern landscape, and they found like some farmer, they did some stuff with the farmer, helped him out, made some friends, and then were chased away by their old villagers. So in this chapter or story, they're flying, they find like this cave in this really big mountain, which they find out is actually a city that's just covered with snow, like an old ruins of a city. No one's living there, except for this one person who they find in the cave, who I don't really know exactly what she's doing and what this character is like. She's kind of crazy and she's like an archaeologist who's studying these past things. So she tells them like, oh, this is an old city. There's something I'm looking for that's in the city that I've been studying and hearing about from other places. So they basically go into the city. They find like an opening and they go into like this old building. There's some interesting artwork and things on the walls of the building. They learn about the past in a really abstract kind of way. They face some challenges. And then they find a rock, because <laughs> rocks are fun. No, it's like this magical artifact rock thing that I used to want to make it a staff, and then I was like, no, rocks are cooler. And then, but they have no idea, like, what it's used for, and this archaeologist person is, like, kind of not explaining it, but is like, oh, it's super important, you guys can help save the world. And Pana's like, oh, so we're, like, the chosen ones, and... She's like, no, <laughs> like I could have given this to anyone. So they're kind of just like thinking about this. They go back to their cave and then the archaeologist leaves and they're like, what just happened? <laughs> That's kind of it. Yeah, that was a good summary. So I guess the things that I want to think about, especially for this chapter, is so we're talking about world building and I kind of try to set up things and this was still like, so at this point when we're recording, I finished the first you know, series of stories. I think there was nine in total. But while I was writing this, I did write them in order. And while I had a general idea of things, I did, you know, develop it more as I went. And I guess, like, I'm just interested in, you know, seeing if the world building in this particular story 
is fleshed out enough, if it's lacking in any way, how much does it like clue you in to the fact that they're in this post-apocalyptic world? I mean, obviously, like there's ruins, but at this point, I don't remember if it's very obvious that it's you know our own Earth yet. Whereas, like I know in a later story, like I make it super explicit, and I refer to some particular notable politicians um, as having caused the apocalypse. But we'll get to that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess just I'm curious about your initial thoughts. Just going from story two, I've read a little beyond that. I've not finished all nine. But going just from story two, I would not be able to say that this was our Earth or our world. Because even though it is ruins, the ruins have like technology that seems still a little more futuristic in, in design than what we have today. So I would be thinking, are these ruins on some other planet or aliens maybe? Or is this just a totally different world that also had some kind of apocalypse happen? Just from story two. Yeah, I forgot about the technology. Yeah, like, um, there's this wall that is there, and then you walk towards it, and it can disappear, or, um, sort of acts like a mirror, and then disappears. Yeah. It's not quite what we have today. Like, beyond it. Or like the magic stone. That's another good point. And I was just about to ask you about that, because when you said technology, I was like, but wait, there's magic in this. So is it actually our world? Um, <laughs> I was like, that was my intention, was to make it, you know, our our world. But I don't know. Does, like, the technology and the stone make it not that? I just assumed the apocalypse happened further in the future than where we are at this point. Knowing that it's supposed to be set in our world, I, I mean, from story two, you don't get this, but I was assuming it happened maybe 500 years, 200 years after us was the apocalypse, after we continued progressing with technology and whatnot, to where it can seem like maybe this technology it seems like magic, or maybe we found a real source of magic, I mean... This world is ours, but it could be a world with magic. Like, Harry Potter is our world with magic. So, I was also thinking of it in that way. Like, magic could just exist as an alternate world of ours with magic. So, I didn't question it too much. That's true. I mean, I know, like, my headcanon, which I also just want to say that, like, I, you know, me as the author, I have kind of my own views on things, but, like, if it's not in the story, then it's not in the story, and as much as I say it, I don't think that really matters that much. But for the purposes of creative writing, like, it's also good to talk about your own thoughts. So if this was a published story, we wouldn't care about authorial intent. Um, or at least I wouldn't. But, like, my thinking for the stone was, like, in our world, like, maybe deep in the past, many, many years ago, there was more, like, magical elements or something or components to the world and like this stone thing like while we don't know about it in our own modern times you know maybe someone like far in the past would have known about it and the apocalypse kind of allowed it to resurface in a way 
don't know if that makes sense at all. But, like, the apocalypse kind of happened and, like, allowed this past thing to come back. I can see that. I mean, I forget if it's explained in story two, but it does make sense with how the dragons are explained in that they used to be around in the world, and then humans started going after them and tailing them, so they hid underground. And then after the apocalypse, they're like, we're free, let's go. I completely forgot about the dragons. <laughs> I don't know if it's covered in story two, but following that logic with the dragons, it makes sense to me. I think that's story four. Oh. But that's good to know that that makes sense. Yeah, so like, even though it's... So like, it's our world in like, quotes. Because there are some differences. Although I still would argue that dragons exist. But that's argument for a different time. It's um, our world, but an alternate universe. Potentially, yeah. Um, so you have all these, like, things. And I guess that's just really important. Like, the idea of the apocalypse as, like, a driver for... I mean, in these examples, a driver for going back to the past in a way. So, like, yes, you're moving on into a future that's different from... Like, you, you no longer have your cities and your modern technology and stuff. But now you have, like, these old, you know, these creatures that once used to live on the Earth. These magical things that used to be there. I don't know. Like, I don't know if I want to necessarily... Like, as I was writing this, definitely something I'm interested in exploring. And it's something that we were talking about with Kipo is, like, you know, the past coming forward and, like, you know, what do we bring with us? So I think in that sense, it's really interesting, like, that these things are coming back, but also, like, like it's cyclical in a, in a way, too, without being entirely, like, you're not entirely going back to the past, but there are certain elements that come with you. So it's not, like, a perfect cycle, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That does make sense. I love thinking about things cyclically. I just also rewatched Princess Mononoke with a friend and thinking about the cycles in that movie as well. But I'm not going to go into that. Please watch Princess Mononoke if you have not. It's a great movie. Um, I have not. Some violence. Check trigger warnings if, if you need to. But yeah, I do appreciate the talking about cyclicalness because in Mononoke it's like the sort of cycles of conflict that happen and how even like after the forest is destroyed like the destruction can't be undone so it's like the cycle of regrowth can only continue as far as it can like go past what has been destroyed but some things have been destroyed so much that it's like the cycle is broken and you have to make some kind of new cycle or i guess it could be like a cycle of destruction versus a cycle of creation in a way that the destruction will keep rolling, like you push a rolling stone down a hill and it just will keep going. And things will just keep getting worse and worse. But then I think certain post-apocalypse stories, like Kipo, definitely show you that things don't just keep rolling downhill and getting bad and awful, but you can also have new societies that form up and create. So even though you're surrounded by all these abandoned stores and skyscrapers that nobody lives in anymore there's also frogs that talk and like 
have their own new social organizations. And yet, I mean, they're not really new social organizations because, like, the frogs are just the mafia. I've only seen season I, episode one, so I, I'm just going yeah. off of, of that. No, so that's, that, that's fair. I'm just going to jump in as someone who's watched this series, like, three times within the last couple of weeks. Uh, but I think it's an interesting point thinking about, because, you know, these animal, like, they bring in elements of, like, the past human society. I think you mentioned, like, about talking about these cycles and, like, making, you know, new societies and stuff. I think that's interesting thinking about, like, what we kind of just take for granted and, like, what we see come back in the cycle. Like, what we see, you know, what we see disappear. And how much of these cycles, like, do we have the power to move away from? So, like, you know, are these cycles necessarily necessary <laughs> or can we just like observe them and be like hey like we kind of see where this is going we've already seen this let's you know take a step off to the right and try something else but i just think that was an interesting point about like you know, everything you're talking about with cycles mm -hmm. i mean i think also the idea of balance is like kind of intrinsic to the idea of cycles where like the cycle of life and death works because there is balance, but when there isn't balance, then there's, if there's too much life, then automatically there has to be more death in order to create, recreate an equilibrium there. Or um, the idea that in the pursuit of finding balance, like the idea of entropy as well, everything is going losing energy and eventually there will be the heat death of the universe and all that but um seeking the lowest energy state of balance in some cases doesn't always mean the most optimal state for life yeah for sure and like just thinking about the story like as we continue like what are we observing that like and this is something that i'm trying to think of like how do you kind of show like characters recognizing this within the story um i think there's like two conversations going on one is like one is between you and the reader of course and like the, the things you want to inform the reader of but also just like what the characters are going on what you know what they're thinking of what they're experiencing i don't know this is just so intriguing like <laughs> especially just the, the societal part you were talking more about like nature Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think partly just because in your story it's so obvious that nature is just out of whack. The balance has been thrown off permanently. Something's happened, yeah. For sure. Oh, so there's a lot to think about. I, I haven't really been thinking of, like, balance within this conversation or, like, within, you know, my writing before. But I think it's very important. Yeah, I think also when I think of, like, apocalypse, I'm like, Things have gone, you know, past the point of no return, which is kind of like, I mean, thinking of climate change as well, but also thinking of like, if it is possible to return to some state of balance that is livable. And for most apocalypse stories, it's like, we've gone past that point, And the balance that has reestablished itself is like a shitty one. Yeah. 
yeah, I kind of, it's hard to think of, like, post-apocalyptic stories where, like, you find a nice, like, good, balanced kind of ending. I mean, can't give spoilers for Kiba, but to jump in with another different story, <laughs> like, um, The Hunger Games, like, that's post-apocalyptic and, like, you know, at the end, you've read, you've read that whole series, right? I mean, yes. Do I remember book three as well? Not really. Okay. I just don't want to spoil. Um, it's not Izzy a spoiler. I just forgot. Okay. But where they, you know, they, Katniss and the rebel people win, and then they, they have to decide, like, do we make the capital do a Hunger Games or not? Like, what is our revenge on them? And Katniss is like, yeah, Hunger Games. <laughs> Let's make the capital kids fight now. Just this, you know, depressing ending to a story. But, you know, one that's, like Izzy said, is in a lot of post-apocalyptic stories. And that is, like, such a clear example of cycles and, like, what's going to happen now? Like, now that they have the capital kids, like, fighting in a Hunger Games. I assume, like, you're, you would have to have, like, rebels come out after that. Like, capital rebels, I guess. So... Yeah, you see how, like, society can kind of just fall into these things very easily. Yeah, and I feel like it's also just, also going back a little to the societal level of, like, the staying power of certain cycles, like the Hunger Games, or just larger cycles of, like, oppression and violence that are beyond the individual level, and so it's hard to stop or change that direction even yeah for like, sure when katniss defeats president or uh, kills president snow or whatever and even after making like a big step to change things it can still be hard to stop the re what's the word re redoing no, it's not that one resurgence i don't know no continuation yeah. Recycling. Up. No. <laughs> I think continuation is right. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm... I can't think of the specific word, but... Redoing it all over again. Revisiting, like, the same things and same events and type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Like, there are definitely certain things that are much harder. I think that's, like... I guess just, like, another thing that I've been trying to think about, like, within my story, like, trying to see... Because, like, obviously there are things like this magic stone and the dragons that kind of just come back, and the human characters, like, have no say over that. But definitely in, you know, how how the characters interact with each other, and the way that they interact with other groups of humans, which we'll see eventually, like, not quite in this story... But there, you know, there are definitely elements of of nature and how cycles play within that, of society, of history. Yeah, and we also do see, I completely forgot to talk about this in the summary, half of this chapter takes place in the past. Oh, uh, yes. Um, we get, as they're going through this city, half of the story is also, like, flashbacks of... Hana, like interacting with their father they're you know they're going on like the village hunt for the first time and they're training and their friend is like trying to teach them how to hunt and Hana's just useless and 
they, you know, they find the dragons for, like, the first time. And then, like, they accidentally wake up all these dragons. And, like, Wave Skimmer is nice, but the rest of the dragons kind of kill, like, a bunch of humans. Um, <laughs> I'm just laughing uncomfortably. Um, I'm, I'm a cruel author. And then Pana's forced to leave. So, also just thinking about, you know, we're not necessarily seeing a cycle here, because, like, Pana's you know, it doesn't have a cycle of, like, waking up dragons and, mm-hmm. you know, creatures that go and kill, like, their fellow villagers. We're definitely thinking about, like, how cycles might start and what this might mean on a personal level for Pana and, like, what they're going to experience rather than just, like, larger societal nature cycles. You know, how do cycles of violence, like, on an individual level start? cycles of, you know, frustrations between, like, parents and children. So there's a lot of different stuff going on. Yeah, I I mean, I actually kind of do see a little bit of cycles, but also a little bit of, um, I guess, breaking of cycles. Because especially in the way that Pana interacts with their dad versus their friend who they talk to about going on the hunt, who tries to teach them about how to hunt, and um, we don't know, we're not given a lot of information up front about how this new village society works and what are the assumptions for gender or for just individual performance and contribution. We're told directly, like, you have to contribute and hunt to provide food for the community, but we're not told much more about, like, the expectations for individuals, especially gender-based expectations. So Pana telling their dad, oh, I'm worried about going on the hunt, and their dad is like, I support you, and even if you don't come back with anything, I'm okay with that. Which I thought was really affirming, and just kind of breaking from the stereotype of, uh, well, Pana is, you know, not a great hunter and kind of breaking from the stereotype of like you have to be strong and you have to be you know good at providing and this sort of not exactly self-sufficiency narrative because it would be self-sufficiency in service of the community but still kind of feeding into that narrative of being like as able-bodied as you can possibly be but then their friend really was more into feeding into that narrative of I'm going to teach you how to hunt and if you're hopeless that's not something I can help but like I would still like you to be as capable as you can be but I really appreciated the portrayal of the father and how he didn't really care that's something that I think is so interesting that you just like within the conversation that you're just talking about like, I don't think I really know of any post-apocalyptic stories outside of Kipo now. Although Kipo, to a certain extent, yeah. Where, like, the characters aren't, like, tough and hunt- hunting type. I just read a story. I don't know. I'm forgetting, like, the author. But, like, something like The Moon of the Crusted Snow or something by an indigenous author in Canada... And, like, yeah, this, like, this white guy kind of shows up to the reservation, like, in this post-apocalyptic setting, 
And he's like, yeah, like, I brought all my guns with me. Like, we need to hunt and survive and be tough. So that's an element of world building, I guess, you need to consider, too. Like, what are the people like, you know, after this, this event has happened? And definitely not something I was trying to go for, where, like, everyone was, like, more affirming and, like, community-driven to a certain extent. But I guess, like, happy accident? <laughs> I don't know. I do think it's a very common trope for post-apocalypse stories to just kind of re redo or like copy paste to a certain extent the crusty gritty survivalist character like Mad Max style is what I'm thinking of where you just are in it for yourself and you have no friends nobody to nobody who can look out for you and nobody for you to look out for because society has broken down to such a degree that everyone's kind of in it for themselves and whatever societies do exist are dysfunctional to an extreme degree because of how broken the world is which I can appreciate but I also get tired of it sometimes seeing post-apocalypse things like that where I'm like yes obviously humans would be deeply affected and society as we know it would not be the same but I just it's very bleak to see the only response would be the worst, most negative response, and we would go back to our most negative, you know, fall back on the most negative practices that we have of forgetting the weak and just leaving anyone behind who can't take care of themselves. Well, and I think the idea of, like, who can take care of themselves is also just, like, wrong in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um... Like, the fact that everyone's, like, oh, like, hunter-type, whatever, like, survivalist. I actually saw, like, this thing recently, like, this poster, and it was, like, you know, in in the apocalypse, it doesn't matter how many guns you'll, you have. It matters, like, you know how to identify edible plants. Like, you know how to plant a garden. So we're going to have, like, a bunch of, you know, in the event of the apocalypse, like, know find a friend who knows how to garden and like work on planting some seeds together but i appreciate that about your world building that especially for pana's father the assumption for the society as as portrayed by the father is not that you have to be as strong as you can be like yes we live in a hard world and yes i'm still going to make you go on the hunt pana but if you come back with nothing that's okay because we're a community together and you should def you should try, give it your all, but I'm not gonna expect, you know, something that you can't meet. I'm not gonna expect the impossible from you. Yeah. Although we are gonna find out in future stories, <laughs> they you know the villagers do have some negative qualities that they do fall back on. So it's not all, you know amazing and wonderful up in the frozen north but at least there is an element of it for now it's definitely like again not something i intended to do but something like thank you for pointing that out i will i will think about that in future stories as well okay it's just something i i liked i appreciated the reaction from their father because it's so easy to just show the negative reaction and be like, yep, that's the way it is. 
and it, yeah. I appreciate your difference. I, I don't like phrase. I don't like that phrasing. Um, I appreciate it. It's also just making me think about like the fact that Pana like ran away in the first story, and I guess like that was something that I was keeping in mind. Like I, you know, I even as the author, I kind of expected like the family to not be that great. And then I was writing this, and I was like, no, he's, like, the dad is a really nice guy. He's not the reason they left. Yeah, I appreciate, obviously, I mean, I definitely am more the cup half full type of person. But I appreciate the kind of looking towards wonder, or looking to the world and with curiosity versus cynicism. Both are valid perspectives in different occasions, but I feel like the cynicism can sometimes overtake the optimism sometimes for also valid circumstances, valid reasons. But I do like the like more functional like family nonsense <laughs> that you have. I mean, that's a conversation we're going to have to revisit in story nine. Oh no, I haven't gotten there. Not family, just like cynicism. I'm a very, I don't know if I'm a cynical person, but I'm very frustrated with the world right now. Which is another reason why I wrote a lot of what I did. But, yep. but no, definitely like, and that's an element of world building too, like the tone of how you want to present things and how you know, kind and considerate, you want to make the society and the people. And just, like, how happy you want to make the story, too, I think. Maybe that's not world-building in the traditional sense, but, like... I think it for sure, like what you, it. Yeah, like, what you come away from reading it with. Like, do you, do you read it and then you, like, have to go and cry for an hour? Which is, like, val that's what I did after Kipo. But, like... Or do you <laughs> read it and, like, you know, you're just like, oh, that was really heartwarming and, like, I feel like I can better live in, you know, in the world and take these lessons and, like, do something with it. Yeah, it's definitely something that, that one should consider when writing. Mm hmm I agree. This is kind of less, like, thematic, but I'm also just curious, since this is a creative writing workshop, the whole, because like I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with like all the flashback scenes. For some reason, in general, like I do think I'm a very good flashback writer. In there's a lot of those like throughout my nine stories, and like I'm comfortable with a lot of them. That's not to say that they're actually good. I just think that they're good. But something that I really am kind of ambivalent about is like the adventure through the city itself. And I tried to come up with things that, like, kind of clued in the reader a little bit into the past, but also the idea that, like, moving forward, you really need Pana and Wave Skimmer, like, Human and Dragon together. And, like, neither of them can really do it on their own. So I think there's one part where, like, Pana can't reach, like, a key or something. Like, Wave Skimmer opens up one entry... And then they go into, like, another room where, like, Wave Skimmer can't go on because he's, like, poisoned temporarily. 
like Pana is like the human is fine and they have to like go and help him in that situation. So like there's this kind of working together element. I don't I guess like my question is like as you were reading it, did that all like make sense? Did it seem very kind of clear? Was it like too confusing? I mean, because there's an element of it where like it needs to be confusing to a certain degree. We're not quite at the level where everyone knows what's going on yet. But I also didn't want to make it like too like surreal, I guess. Yeah, I think that is a hard balance to hit. And I think for the first trial, I guess, with the trial by fire, literally, that one read fairly smoothly to me with, uh, it was meant to be like all of a sudden. So I was taken aback. I was like, wait, what fire? But also because of the way the situation was, it was like, yeah, they, they didn't see it coming. So a reader wouldn't see it coming either. The second trial where Wave Skimmer was poisoned and Pana um, has to save Wave Skimmer with uh, t touching a red button. I didn't follow that as well. I was a little confused because Pana was obviously looking for some way to save Wave Skimmer, but the very their very first thought was, let's just jump into this chasm. And I was like, you didn't try anything else? You didn't even look in the room. You're just like, jump in the chasm, let's go. So I think maybe just a little troubleshoot for that part, because I was like, how, how, did, how did they connect the dots between this red light equals safety versus this red light equals random menacing light that I cannot reach because I will die jumping in there. I think if there maybe had been, I don't know, a clue to say that the light could help them, or like a clue being like, jump, do a trust fall. <laughs> I mean, something like that. Just because I was like, but to me, there just was not quite a, a clue there. But I thought that it, like, if you just filled in that little gap, it would have been a good sequence. That's actually really helpful. I did not think of that. Because I was like, but why, why did the thoughts connect in that particular order? <laughs> or at least for Pana being like, yes, I get your panicking. But like, I, my panic would not lead me to jump into a chasm. <laughs> but I did like, like, falling in the chasm, Pana kind of like floats to the bottom and does not die. And I like that because it's definitely symbolic trust and self-sacrifice. Which can definitely be powerful, given the right setup. And I don't think, I mean, it didn't feel like Pana was sacrificing themselves. They were like, certain, this is the option. And I was like, but why are you certain that this is the option? Like, even if the reader doesn't know, I feel like Pana had to go through a thought process of being like, thinking through, this is my option, this is the only thing I can do, versus just like, see chasm, jump in chasm. But um, other than that, I thought um, the trials were a good part. Yeah, I mean, just going off of that, like, clearly I had, I think for the first one, it was like, kind of clear, like, okay, dragon, fireproof, like, can save human. I was like, I had no idea what Pana was gonna be able to do. And I was like, what is this human who like, can't really do much? Like, what are they going to do to save this dragon? And I just couldn't figure it out. And then there was, like, poison, I don't know, jumping off thing. 
So I think that was really helpful because like I knew it was confusing and like thank you for confirming that and thank you for your point about like it can really simply be solved through like a, a simple clue. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I thought it was a good sequence of being like, oh no, it's poison gas, but only for wave skimmer. Oh no. I think that kind of thing makes sense because, like, a dragon would not be susceptible to the th same things that humans would be hurt by, and vice versa. So, moving on, we each picked one sentence, or one quote, I don't know if you picked this, a single sentence, but we picked a quote of just something that we really liked in the story to kind of end with something positive before we, like, give you our final, just, like, takeaways about what to consider when thinking about world building. So Izzy, do you want to share your quote first? Oh, I shall. It's just, it's very short. Technically it's three sentences, but it's all one person speaking. Sort of from the middle end. Or no, this is actually more towards the beginning middle when they're entering the city. It's you, whispered Salston. The city recognizes you. It beckons you. So that is uh, when Pana and Wave Skimmer are actually looking at the weird mirror wall. And um, the strange architect, architect lady, Salston, is saying, Go in. It's totally safe. No, she doesn't say that, but I appreciated this line. It felt, um, you know, the, ob the obvious call to adventure, but... um. I thought, I just love when inanimate things like the city recognizes you, it beckons you. I love when personification in that way is used for inanimate things. If you write like that, I might like your writing. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know. I don't have anything, like, smart to add. I just appreciated the line. Okay, that's awesome. I don't know why the city is recognizing them, but... This is a whole, like, just weird, kind of magical, surreal story. This is very not super relevant, but, like, I base most, almost all of my characters on, like, people I know. Izzy, did you get who Salston was? I didn't know you were basing them off people you knew, so I wasn't even thinking that. Okay. But anyway, moving on. My quote is when Anna is kind of getting ready... For this hunt thing they're talking with their dad and even though he's really nice he is stern and like fairly so like i don't think this quote isn't to make anyone mad at him because he's awesome but he says it is time to become an adult yeah and i just chose this because i don't like this i don't like the idea that there's like a timeline and that's something i mean we're not actually told how old pana is at this point also, because it's a flashback, but at any point in the story, I don't know how old Pana is. That's a good point. I don't know. Um, <laughs> something to consider. Not that it's necessarily important to give, like, a number age, but... Yeah, but definitely, like... Yeah, no, there's just a lot of conversations recently, like, in my life. I think that comes with, like, having just graduated college. We're in this great stage where everyone's kind of, like, expecting you to just suddenly become a, a fully grown adult who can function in society. Well, um, who? Who isn't 
ready for that. Yeah, it's, I mean, some people do it amazingly. Like, my cousin is just, like, he, he graduated and was like, okay, like, I'm a human now. But not everyone is like that. So, yeah, that's it. It stinks. I mean, the con, like, again, the context, like, he, you know, everyone needs to contribute to this and, like, help out the society and, like, work together. And I get that. I don't think his, like, framing and, like, argument was necessarily the best one. But again, he's a super cool character. And in general, like, even though he makes this mistake, he's very nice. Yeah, I mean, I think that it can be a fine line. For instance, my, well, my, my family, well, very low probability they will listen to this. My dad has been bothering both of my brothers, more brother than one, one brother more than the other, to make the transition to adult life. <laughs> and to a certain extent, it is definitely annoying to my brother, but also having a little bit of a push can be very helpful. Like, my brother did start volunteering for this, like, the Virginia Forest Service and all this. He would not have probably done it as quickly if my dad had not been on him about it. And so I can appreciate having a little bit of, like, pressure put on you to grow, but also how it can be very obnoxious. Yeah, for sure. Like, the you know... The, the father in this case, like, is super correct, but it's, like, the framing, I think, just the wording of it. When people are like, oh, it's time to grow up. Like, that's annoying, even if it's correct to a certain degree. But also, like, there's some things, you know, like, there's some things where you absolutely do need to, like, transition into this adult life and, like, become, you know, more self-sufficient and, and whatnot. But there are also some things that, like, are super not important and like we're told like oh you have to get like married at a certain age you have to have kids at a certain age like no <laughs> like that's just wrong <laughs> definitely and like yeah so he's he's definitely arguing for like something that's reasonable and i just because of whatever reasons i'm frustrated at it but yeah i mean i also have no idea what i i will do in as as somewhat of an adult but <laughs> I kind of do to a certain extent appreciate my parents do it, giving me a little push at times just because sometimes I wouldn't necessarily be brave enough to do that step without somebody being like I believe you can do it but then there's always the thing with like put childish things away and it's just like but this isn't childish this is actually very important to me or the idea of what an adult looks like can be very different when somebody tells you to become an adult. What do they mean when they say that? Absolutely. That doesn't apply to world building necessarily, but... Oh, but this is our fun segment outside of the theme. <laughs> that's true. I mean, it could. Going back to the idea of adulthood, how do you define adulthood? Also with the idea of an age cutoff for childhood and just like the modern era the idea of like an entering the adult world like the sliding scale of like 18 you're technically an adult 21 you're technically an adult 25 you're technically an adult because you meet all these different benchmarks and it's like when do you 
really start being adult or can really vary depending on your situation. And a 21-year-old can be financially dependent on their parents and not have a job versus an 18-year-old can be financially independent and doing a whole 9-to-5 work day and the idea that age in itself determines adulthood. Um, for your story, world-building-wise, like, especially with the apocalypse having happened, I think it would also deeply affect the idea of pe like people's roles in that society and how the expectations are formed. And it also, like, I mean, like you said, it changes based off of context. And we've been talking about it, um, about world building largely in the sense of like stuff within our own world um, and connecting it to themes and ideas and society and nature and like just things that we see or have read about that we know existed. Like that doesn't have to be the case. Like you can also world build like a completely new world. Like baby Yoda is 50 years old and he's <laughs> not financially independent. Um, so that's a, like another thing you need to consider is like how different do you want the world to be? And maybe there can be like similar cycles and themes like within that. But in order to explore, you know, certain ideas, even if you want to explore something that's like very close to home for you and is something that you experience on a day-to-day -day basis or something that you see in your society that you really like want to question and think through you can still do that in like a very fantastical way like you don't need to make a story that's like post-apocalyptic and takes place on our earth with like some differences um or is like realistic fiction like you can totally just like do something crazy with aliens and spaceships and like still explore capitalism or like something like um, the what capitalism? And, like still explore like ideas of capitalism. Oh, oh. Um, I thought you were saying like a version of capitalism that I'd never heard of before. No. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's like something to consider. Definitely. I always appreciate a good fantasy route uh, or sci fi. Yeah, no, for sure. Just like the fact that I'm writing like not complete fantasy is still very weird to me. I mean, the fact that I became like a geography student is really weird to me. But anyway, I thought I was going to be an English student. But anyway, do we want to just finish up with our our thoughts? Yeah, I like thinking about like the past, how, what bringing the past into the present, and thinking about the ramifications in your world building because for me world building is a lot more holistic than just setting and it involves seeing the consequences and the domino like the ping pong effect of one thing on another thing yeah i mean and that's something that's super important to this too in both like i mean we're gonna see in like later stories in both a societal way where like we have these like weapons of mass destruction like left over um so like literally weapons from the past that are that are still there need to be reckoned with and also just like everything that goes on with pana like accidentally releasing the dragons and mm -hmm. um 
how the friend reacts to that because like the friend goes hunting for them and like you know as they go and explore these new places they you know they meet these farmers they go to the city and meet the archaeologists the next story they're gonna meet other people but there's still this backdrop of like dealing with um and thinking about like everything that happened and how that impacts like future relationships and like we're also going to see like the characters meet up and stuff i feel like we didn't talk about the past like being brought into the future as much as we could have but yeah there's, there's a definitely lot there. a lot of that going on yeah i mean also it's just not i mean it, it in story two, at least, it's still more of a question. Like, you still don't know everything. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to, like, talk about that without bringing up all the other stories. Because mm -hmm. here's just literally, like, the past event that is going to be important. Yeah. And starting the idea that, like, the past is important. The fact that they need to go into this old city and, like, take something from the heart of the city. And in a lot of ways, like... It almost made me think of like the heart of a the heart of a mountain, mm -hmm. um, whereas like in a lot of the stories you have like this rock that is like symbolic of like, or like in many cases just is like the living entity of the mountain, I guess. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they have to like go back into this old place and that's where it's being kept, and like the stone is glowing, so like there's this element of life to it, like the past isn't quite dead. But it's also like this past within the past because like if the stone is from like way before like in ancient prehistoric times like it's being held in like i guess what we would consider or what i would consider like our modern times so there's always like these layers of like how things impact each other mm -hmm. so now that we've talked about my story are there any last minute thoughts you have izzy or like tips to consider when world building or you know our listeners yeah i like from our discussion thinking world building as you know a lot more of a holistic exercise than just doing the setting and being like we are in the library but thinking definitely of how the past affects the present and the future and really taking the time depending on how detailed you want your world building to be, of course, but to see the ping pong back and forth between if this exists in the world, then that would be how people react to it, or there's a waterfall here, so the climate would be like this, or whatever. Or, especially for a post-apocalypse, since your story is there, thinking about how the past still lives on in different ways and how do you want it to look or and to affect the present and thinking about too like the fact that there was an apocalypse like there was something before that so like what did that pre-apocalypse look like what did the actual apocalypse look like and you know what does the current post-apocalyptic setting look like so you need to consider like not just one era of time Although, I mean, you can choose to leave things ambiguous, too. Like, that's totally fine. But, like, I think for me, it's definitely helpful kind of having an idea of, like, the overarching history of the entirety of the world, in a sense. 
I don't know. Maybe that's also just like an earth scientist thing too. Like that's. I think it can depend on but, the scope of your story. Yeah, for sure. So like, you definitely you don't need it like for for some cases. I just think like I would recommend keeping in mind all those different components of it. Yeah, I guess I I only had the one thought. I mean, I also I love detailed world building, so I always say thoroughness is great. But don't don't get yourself bogged down to the point where you have to figure out every little thing. Because I think also there's definitely a discovery process as you write your story and you're like, actually, I want the world to be like this. Or actually, this character has this and I've just realized that it would probably be because of some thing that happened to their mom that I just thought of. So writing your story can also help you build the world. It isn't just like a one step by step type thing where you have to do things in a certain order. Yeah, writing is a lot of rewriting. So as you, you know, as you go along, you'll figure things out. I also think like going off of a point you made about like figuring out the characters' ages and like what that means for the characters. Well, a lot of times like figuring out your characters will kind of help you with the world building. So like don't necessarily assume you need to create the world before you cre create the characters. And even like, you know, sometimes it can be just as important, like thinking about what kind of themes and lessons you want to have in mind. And you know, not every like story needs a theme or a lesson necessarily. I just like having something that I can really think about. But you can totally just like write an action act um, adventure story. But maybe kind of you know, if you wanted to, like, have some sort of statement thinking about what that is, you know, might determine how you go about your world-building process and what kind of world you, you decide to create. Yeah, which is partly, like, for your story, how it does tend to be more towards the optimistic side, even though, obviously, things are messed up. But um, I think that definitely um, that perspective influences the way the world is built in that this world is like glacial and endless winter, but it doesn't feel as forbidding and terrifying and difficult to live in as it w could if it was viewed from a different perspective. The character is going through and like naming plants and animals and like discovering new things, and also moving into warmer areas, but it doesn't feel, you know, like a death march through the tundra. So I think also this considering the perspective of your characters and also the whatever lesson you want can very much influence how you like describe the world and which creates a whole different world where like this plane could be a golden fields of wheat or it could just be boring Omaha very <laughs> barren field that I want to escape from and it can be the same field but it's very different by what you want your readers to get out of it I think kind of just like if I wanted to summarize everything that you know Izzy and I have been talking about I think just the fact that like world building is so much more than just like constructing the physical landscape around the characters there's just a lot to it. Like, I never considered, like, tone as being part of that. 
there's like all these other facets to it. So yeah, there, there's just a lot to it. And there's a lot of ways that you can work on your own world building in really interesting ways. Yes. With that said, I suppose we can end the episode. Thank you listeners, as always, and of course, most of all to you for keeping this podcast afloat. Indeed. <laughs>